we've seen Paul weave several themes in the passage we've been looking at in Romans chapter 5, verses actually 1 through 11. We've seen the theme of hope. The theme of hope has been forward-looking, not only in terms of the future that we have with Christ in eternity, but uh, even future in the Christian walk. So we've had the theme of hope. We've had the theme of exaltation. We can exalt because of our justification and the things that are following justification. So several things that we can exalt in. The passage that we could look at today concludes with exaltation. So it's also forward-looking. We also have seen the theme of the death of Christ. His death is woven throughout this passage, almost every verse. We also have the theme of the love of God. We focused on that the last couple of weeks. We also have the theme of the Christian walk. In fact, this whole passage is a transition from that once-for-all justification that we receive in Christ on the basis of the death of Christ and the next major section in the book of Romans we call sanctification, which deals with the Christian walk. Last time we also saw the theme of salvation, and we saw that it's not the salvation that we generally think of when you see or encounter the term salvation, but it's a salvation that is ongoing. And that's the topic that we have in chapters 6 through 8. And also we've seen the theme of reconciliation. Now, the term hasn't occurred yet until the passage that we're going to look at today, but when it speaks in five one of we having peace with God, that peace is the byproduct or the result of reconciliation. So that theme has run throughout these 11 verses as well. And today we will concentrate on the theme of reconciliation. Now in this discussion that Paul gives us on reconciliation, this is a major doctrine. And it's a doctrine that you don't find the terms for reconciliation very often in Scripture, but the concept is there. It's a word that's related to relationships, so it deals with the relationship between man and God, which permeates all of the scriptures. Now, there are only a few passages where the term itself occurs. One of them is this passage in the book of Romans, particularly verses 10 and 11. So that'll be the focus of what we look at today. So in our study of the book of Romans, we've been concentrating on the original readers that lived in Rome and were suffering for their faith, some of them being persecuted, and that is also a theme that we find in the passage before us. We saw that in verses 3 through 5. So we're in the major division that we have titled The Provision of God's Righteousness all the way to the end of chapter 8 after the introduction. And we've been concentrating on justification, chapters 3 through the end of chapter 5, 321 through 521. 
Now, we're looking at the last portion of this topic of justification. It's something of a transition to the next major subdivision of the book of Romans. We'll call that sanctification. There are four parts that I see in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We talked about the present benefits of justification. That's chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That being peace. As a result of justification, we have peace with God, and we have an introduction to his grace, and we also can exult in a future hope. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, is ongoing tribulation that we can exult over as well, because we know that God is going to use it for our spiritual growth. And the last few Sessions, we've been talking about the past divine accomplishment, verses 6 through 8. And the focus again, as it has been since verse 1, is the death of Christ. That's the past accomplishment. And that death, also in that passage, that death is the basis or the demonstration of this love that God has poured out amongst us and particularly in the midst of uh, tribulation. So now that moves us to chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, ongoing salvation. Now we looked at verse 9, and we spoke about that ongoing salvation, and I gave you a word study on the term so that you you see that the word is used in a variety of ways, four very different ways from the one that we normally think of when we encounter the word salvation in the in the Bible, either Old Testament or New Testament. I gave you the three major usages. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first of all, in chapter 5, verse 9, much more then. Now, he's already laid out these benefits, present benefits. He's already demonstrated that even in the midst of tribulation, we can still exult. In other words, there's much to rejoice in God concerning this justification that we received. And the great accomplishment of Christ's death and the great outpouring of his love. But beginning in verse 9, he's going to conclude this this portion that ends in verse 11. There's even more, much more than having now been justified by his blood. And last time we talked about the blood of Christ as a metaphor representing his death. And along with justification, it's the means by which the payment for sin was made so that we, in fact, may be justified as we believe in him. So there's several, not only themes, through these passages, but key ideas. One of the key ideas is the idea of justification. The passage begins with it. And now we have almost the identical phrase in verse 9, having now been justified. So he's talking about those that have received God's salvation. Paul uses the theological term justification. He's mentioned before particularly in chapter 3, that that justification is by grace and we access it by faith. In other words, there's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's by grace. No obedience to the law. No observance of feasts. 
no good works. It is totally by grace. We are totally undeserving. And he had already spent the first part of the book of Romans, chapters 1, 2, and half of chapter 3, showing that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Now, he doesn't use that phrase, but he says that there is none righteous, no, not even one. So the justification that we've been talking about is by grace, and we access it by faith. And now in this passage, it's by his death, his blood being a picture or a metaphor of of death. And it's a an idea and a concept that comes from the Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system, the shedding of animal, the shedding of blood represented the death of those animals. And over and over and over, animals were slain to deal with the issue of sin. And now with Christ's death on the cross, once and for all, it is now by his blood. So that's the basis of the justification the price for the penalty of of sin. So that's a key idea. There are several others. We looked at, as I've just mentioned, this idea of salvation, also in verse 9. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, the little phrase, we shall be saved, it's future in the sense of beginning with the justification, the rest of the Christian life. In fact, this is related to that transition that I told you about. We're transitioning from a salvation that is ongoing. So it's a salvation, not in the sense that we oftentimes think of when we encounter the word saved or salvation, either the the verb form sozo or the noun form soteria. So we shall be saved. Let's look at that by way of reminder. I mentioned that there are four ways, four major ways that that word is used in scripture. One of them is in its normal everyday sense, just the idea of being saved, or maybe a better word might be delivered from some harm, delivered from some danger, and now you have escaped, and you can use the word, I was saved from whatever that danger was. We looked at the illustration from Acts chapter 27, where Paul being transported to Rome, the ship that he was on encountered a storm. And in fact, it's a long chapter that deals with all the things that happened that brought them to the brink of almost thinking they were going to lose their lives. But in the midst of that, we find out that Paul tells the crew that if they do certain things, they shall be saved. Now, he's not talking about salvation in a spiritual sense. He's just talking about salvation from death that is imminent as a result of the the storm. And it's used uh, a few times in that passage. Now, in the Old Testament, the same idea and the corresponding Hebrew word for salvation It is also used in this everyday sense or in the sense of salvation from harm, of some danger. In some context, it refers to a salvation in warfare where your army is victorious, it defeats the enemy, and as a result, you are saved from being killed by that enemy invader or that battle that uh, you might find yourself in. 
So the word is a word that applies to any situation where you might be in danger, not always of losing your life, but danger of some harm. And in general, it's a physical, material danger that you escape from or are, in this case, delivered from. It's used also in a context of being saved from an illness or a a physical malady. It's a physical idea, physical deliverance. Now, more often, however, in both Old Testament and New Testament, it's used in a theological sense. It's used in the sense of a salvation from an ultimate or from a spiritual danger. And there's where the remaining three other senses that you can find in different contexts how this word is used. And we mentioned that it's used in that past tense sense. That's the sense that most people think of when they encounter the word, particularly in the New Testament. And in fact, there's some confusion in some passages that almost indicate that this salvation seems to be on the basis of works. And you can think of passages like even James chapter 2, but a passage that we used like last week, the Philippians 2 verse 12, where it talks about working out your salvation. Now, that passage is different from this past tense sense. Now, when we think of salvation, we think of it as occurring at the moment that we trusted in Jesus Christ. And we mentioned last week, it's a salvation from ultimate damnation, from hell, from eternal separation from God. Now, Paul is talking about the same thing in the book of Romans, but he calls it justification, a different theological word. But justification is a salvation. In fact, it's the same idea, except it's looking at it more from a legal perspective or the courtroom context. That's the salvation from the penalty of sin, eternal separation from God. Now, the word is used not just in that past tense sense, as we talked about last week, but it's used in a future sense. Now, Paul is going to discuss this also in the book of Romans when we get to chapter 8. And I think he might allude to it in other passages, but he uses the word glorification. This is a different aspect of this larger theological salvation from spiritual things. That future salvation or glorification does not occur in this life but it's future after we go to be with the Lord. And it's a salvation from the very presence of sin. So the past tense sense deals with the penalty, the ultimate and final penalty of sin, the future sense from the very presence of sin. And at glorification, that'll occur when we go to be with the Lord in death or through the rapture. Then we will be separated from the sin nature We will no longer have the sin nature, and that is viewed as a salvation. And the word sozo, and sometimes soteria, is used in this future sense. We looked at the First Peter 1 passage that looked forward to a future that is yet to be revealed. It's one that will be revealed at the rapture or resurrection. So it's a 
salvation from the very presence of sin, where we will never be tempted again, never experience the issues of sin in the flesh, because we will be separated from that body of sin. And I mentioned last time that it not only can be used in a past tense sense, and also in a future sense, but in an equal number of passages, equal to that past tense sense, it can also be used in a present tense sense. And Paul describes that as well in the book of Romans. He calls that sanctification. So salvation has these many aspects to it. It has a past tense aspect, a future aspect, and an ongoing present tense sense. And this is transitional, and I think the reason that Paul speaks of salvation here is because he's going to discuss in more detail in the next chapter this whole experience of salvation in the Christian life. In fact, the Christian life is God working in us from a negative perspective to save us from ongoing sin in a positive sense to grow us in righteousness. Remember, justification, we're declared righteous, but not made righteous. Glorification is the final outworking of the whole process where we will be totally, not only declared, but actually, in reality, righteous, because we will not have a sin nature. The Christian life is the process that God is using here and now to grow us in that direction. We never arrive until we go to be with the Lord, but it's an ongoing process where we become more and more Christ-like. Paul describes that as sanctification. So salvation, you need to study the context, and that's what we did in verse 9, to discern in what way the author of whatever passage, in what way he is using the word sozo that we have in verse 9. Because of this context, as a transitional passage, and he's talking about issues after justification, in other words, after that past tense salvation, and he's transitioning to the Christian walk in the area of sanctification, I take it that when he says in verse 9, we shall be saved, he's talking about this ongoing present tense sense. So the second key idea in this passage is this idea of salvation. And in this context, and he's going to use it again in verse 10, in this ongoing sense that takes place during the Christian life. And in this context, it is not salvation from hell or it's not that past tense sense. Now, what about this other little phrase? saved from the wrath of God through him. Not only do most Christians, when they see the word saved, think of that past tense sense, but when they think of and see the word wrath in the scriptures, they almost immediately think, oh, that future final judgment wrath. Well, I think this is in the same context. And if sozo is used in this present ongoing sense, then I think that the salvation from this wrath that is in view at the end of verse 9 here 
is a temporal wrath. In other words, we are continually saved from the power of sin, as we saw on the last slide. We're saved in the midst of temptation. We're delivered from falling into sin. If we fail and we allow the flesh to take control, then we leave ourselves open to the possibility of suffering the consequences of that sin. And if we persist in it, then it can even lead to wrath, and it can lead to the wrath of God. So I think in the book of Romans, I don't think that Paul has changed his meaning. And if you remember in chapter 1, I made a big point out of it because I think that is a very clear passage that when Paul is talking about wrath in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. Not only is it in the present tense, indicating that there's a present tense sense of wrath, just like there's a present tense sense of salvation, there's also a present tense or temporal sense of wrath. And I think what we have here is wrath in that temporal sense where God can become angry with even the believer, not that he will lose his salvation or not that he will be rejected by God, but there is wrath in in the sense of discipline. And this is not, in this context, referring to eternal damnation or eternal wrath. So that's another key idea that I think this passage presents to us, the idea of wrath in a temporal sense. I think I mentioned last time that I think I challenged you to see if you could find an occurrence of the word wrath in the book of Romans used in any other way other than in this temporal sense. I don't think Paul has changed the meaning in chapter 5. I don't think he's referring to that future wrath. I think he's using it in the same sense as he did in chapter 1. And even later on in the book of Romans, in chapter 12, the term wrath is used again. And I think there, again, it is clearly in this ongoing temporal sense. So notice what it says. It says in 12.17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now the context here is when you are suffering as a result of persecution or as a result of someone intimidating you in some way. Don't pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, it's not always possible. In other words, he introduces the potential that no matter what you do, you may suffer for your faith, for example. Verse 19, never take your own revenge if that happens. And he's speaking to the believer. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament support, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So he uses the word wrath there, and we're to leave room for the wrath of God. And I think what he's talking about in the context of persecution, if we are faithful, if we are obedient to the Lord, if we don't strike back, if we, in fact, the next verse, pour coals on their head, in other words, return their evil for good, verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him a drink. He's talking about the enemy. 
For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Then it closes the paragraph, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But the key phrase there is leave room for the wrath of God. If we can do that, I believe that in a time, in a short time, God will intervene and may pour out wrath on that persecutor. So I think in this context, Paul is using it in the same temporal sense, not referring to a future wrath. So that uh, brings us to verse 10. For, in other words, following from verse 9, for if while we were sinners, for if while we were enemies, and there's the fourth word that we found in this context describing the unbeliever. But notice again, it's in the past tense. While we were past tense, we were reconciled. So it was in the midst of being enemies that God intervened. And when we trusted in him, applying the death of Christ on the cross, on our behalf, we were reconciled. So there's the occurrence of the word for the first time in verse 10. And I've got it inserted in the text there, the Greek word katalasso. Now, this word is translated to reconcile. It's the verb form. Now, the word does not occur that frequently in the New Testament, but the concept, as I've said, uh, occurs over and over. But the word itself We find it in this passage, and in fact, this is one of the central passages where the word occurs. In its verb form, it only occurs six times, so not very frequent, and two times right here in verse 10, and the noun form occurs another four times. So verb and noun only occurs ten times in the New Testament. Now, there's a word group that includes other words that are related directly to this word, and there's others of those as well. So let's take a look at this and explore this doctrine of reconciliation that I think is very, very important in Scripture, in spite of the fact that the actual word itself is not that frequent. So another key passage, in fact, the passage where the word occurs in most frequency is Second Corinthians 5, and uh, I've only got verse 17 on the slide there, but let's go ahead and look back so that we can see the parallel with not only the Romans passage, but uh, other passages as well. So let's begin in verse 13. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God... If we are of sound mind, it is for you. And then verse 14, And for the love of Christ controls us. Notice the theme of love, similar to what we have in Romans. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Notice again the theme of the death of Christ, the one being Christ himself. Also notice, remember we looked at the preposition who pair having the idea of one dying in the place of another or for the benefit of another or as a substitute. We have that here in the Second Corinthians passage as well, that one died for all, 
therefore all died. So we died positionally with Christ. In fact, positionally, we are crucified with him. And then notice also 15, it continues, and he died for all, again repeated, his death in view and who pair again in the place of all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, the first Second Corinthians 5 passage now begins to transition from the death to the resurrection, and we're going to see the same thing in Romans chapter 5. Now, skip down to verse 17. We'll skip verse 16 there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, he's talking about those in Christ. In other words, those that have trusted in Christ, those that have believed in him, those that have the indwelling presence of Christ. We are new creatures. From God's perspective, we are not only declared righteous, but viewed as having the righteousness of Christ because we are in Christ. So we are new creatures. And the old has passed. In other words, the antagonism, the concept of being enemies, ungodly, helpless, that's past because God has dealt with it. Now, he doesn't use the word justification here, but he's talking about the same idea here. He's talking about before we were justified, these things that are old, now that we are justified, those things have passed. Now, we still have the sin nature. He's not denying that. But he's talking about a new relationship here because now in verse 18, he's going to talk about that new relationship. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Notice it's the same word, and I've inserted the verb there in the text as well, at least the Greek word there, paralleling what we saw in the Romans passage 5.10. So, who reconciled us, katalaso, to himself, through Christ, and we'll come back to this, but notice also in verse 18, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And notice there, we have the same word, except now in its noun form. So, the Second Corinthians 5, at least 18 here, is parallel with what we have in uh, Romans 5.10. And it adds to the idea of reconciliation of those that were enemies, as it says in 5.10. Now, there's another passage that also has some parallels to it, Colossians 1. And in 21 and 22, now the word occurs also in 20, but we'll come back to that. But in 21 and 22, and although you were formerly, notice the past, he's talking to believers, he's talking to those that have received justification, and notice the parallel with Romans passage. Romans says we were enemies, we're ungodly, we're sinners. Here we were alienated. In other words, we were separated. There was a distance between us and God. And hostile, there's the enemy idea, hostile in mind. We were at war with God. And it works itself out in our life, engaged in evil deeds. It's past tense. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. 22. Yet, 
He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And notice we have not the identical word, but we have the same word with a slightly different spelling with a preposition attached to the the beginning of it. And I don't know if you remember, but I've made the point in other contexts with other words. When you add a preposition to a verb, do you remember what it does to the verb? It usually or oftentimes has the same idea, except the preposition intensifies it so that we could even translate it. Yet he has now totally or completely reconciled you or reconciled you to the fullest in his fleshly body. So it's uh, intensified, even though the New American Standard translates it identical to the, the other. And in some cases, uh, there perhaps is not a change or not an intensification, but I think in this context, it would, it would fit. So the Colossians passage, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Notice the similar theme that we have in the book of Romans. It's forward looking. It's looking in this case, to ultimate sanctification, to present us before him in a perfect and holy and blameless, beyond reproach state. That's when we are perfectly righteous. Paul calls that in Romans glorification. So we have three passages here where we have the word katalaso and in the verb form, in the noun form, and here in the Colossians passage, with a preposition attached to it, uh, giving us uh, three major passages that are all very similar, with similar themes, dealing with this reconciliation that we have with God. It's a joining to God. It's a change in relationship. God in Scripture is never reconciled to us, because God does not need to change. God is immutable. And we are the ones that need the changing, so it's a reconciliation of man to God. And I put on the slide here the Colossians 1, 21 and 22 passage, and you can also include the Romans 5, 10 and the 2 Corinthians 5, 18. So there are different aspects of reconciliation. The fundamental aspect and the one that must come before all others is man must be reconciled before God, before there can be any other reconciliation that has to take place. And then in Ephesians 2.16, we have this intensified form again. And like I said, there are not a lot of passages, but here's another one, Ephesians 2.16. And in the context, if you remember, the first 10 verses deal with a description of our salvation. First three verses talks about our being dead, following up the course of this world, Satan being involved, the flesh being involved. And then after that, now he's going to talk about the results of that salvation that I think in verses 1 through 10 in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I think it is personal. And beginning in verse 11, now he's going to transition in terms of more a corporate idea in terms of Jew and Gentile. The two groups that were at most antagonism in at least Israel 
were Jews antagonistic and returning the favor of Gentiles antagonistic to Jews. But in verse 16, and might reconcile, apokatalato, reconcile them both. The them refers to Jew and Gentile if you look at the context. Reconcile them both in one body. The body of Christ is composed of people from all nations, every nation, including Jew and all of the rest of the peoples, all of the rest of the nations, Jew and Gentile. He's reconciled those two antagonistic groups into one body. We call that the church. And again, notice the parallel through the cross. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross. It's based on him paying the penalty to satisfy the righteous judgment of God so that man can be reconciled to God. And in this context, two antagonistic groups. And he did this by it having put to death the enmity. See that theme as well? We are enemies, the idea of being at war with God. So we could say that there's a second aspect of reconciliation And in this context, it refers to Jew and Gentile. But there's even a third aspect. This one also is in that same passage we looked at in Colossians, the verse just preceding the one that we just looked at, Colossians 1.20. And notice it's through him, through Jesus Christ, to reconcile. And again, we have the apokatalato, to reconcile all things to himself. Not just individuals to God, not just groups like Jew and Gentile, but now reconciling all things. I think he's talking about the entire created order. So he's going to bring harmony back to the creation. Remember with the first sin, all of the universe was affected. So all of the universe, you could say, is out of relationship or out of kilter in terms of God himself. But God is going to ultimately reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, and notice through the blood of his cross, referring to the death again, through the the blood, the giving of his life on the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In other words, the entire universe, he's going to reconcile all things. So we have a third aspect of reconciliation The reconciliation of the entire universe is going to be brought in harmony, much like it was before sin entered in the Garden of Eden. There's going to be a total and ultimate restoration of all, such that all is in harmony with God, not just man, not just Jew and Gentile. Now back to the Second Corinthians passage, I want you to notice another thing. There's a fourth aspect In fact, a very important aspect, and because of that, this 2 Corinthians passage is probably the most central of all passages dealing with reconciliation. That's why I've kind of highlighted it by looking at these slides rather than having one of you read from the biblical text. But in 2 Corinthians 5, and I've included the last part of verse 18 and also verse 19 because it gives us a further reconciliation or the next stage of reconciliation, the fourth aspect. And the last part of the verse says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's the noun form, katalage, 
So there is a verb form, there's a noun form, and in this context, it's a ministry of reconciliation. And in 19, it goes on, namely, in other words, this is what I mean, that God was in Christ reconciling, there's the verb form, the world to himself. And I think in this context, the world of all of humanity, God did everything necessary such that every person could, in fact, be reconciled. Now, not everyone is automatically reconciled because not everyone wants to trust in Christ, but provision has been made such that Christ can reconcile the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them because they were dealt with, and he has committed, and this is important here, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There's the noun form again. What is that word of reconciliation? I think it's the gospel message. The gospel message that brings salvation, that uh, brings justification. And in the process of justification, now that enmity is removed, that war, that uh, state of being an enemy is removed, and now we can be reconciled or made friends with God himself. And then verse 20 goes on, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Well, recently we heard in the news, Nikki Haley gave notice that she was leaving the administration. Presently, she is the United States ambassador to the United Nations. And it's a picture of what an ambassador is. And the meaning of the word is it's someone that stands in the place of another or represents that other person or even a nation. And we are representatives of Christ. We are ambassadors for him. We stand before the world, just like Nikki Haley stands before the nations, you could say before the world, representing our country, the U.S., representing the Trump administration, and representing the president himself. She is the ambassador. She is the one that represents us. She speaks on our behalf. She reflects our values, our concerns, our interests in the world, and she makes those known, and she effects not only suggestions, but policy that is in the best interest of our country. We are citizens of a different realm. We're not only citizens of the U.S., but we're citizens of heaven itself. We know that from Philippians and other passages. And what this passage says, we're ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. And what is our task? We have the word of reconciliation, and we're to go about the business proclaiming that word. And the text says, as though God were making an appeal through us. When Nikki Haley stands before the UN, it's as if we, as citizens of the U.S., are making an appeal to all of the nations of the world, or it's as if President Trump is making an appeal, letting it be known what the desires of our country are. When she speaks, she's making an appeal on behalf of our country. So also, it's as if God sending us, being a part of his administration, representing him, we are his ambassadors, God making an appeal through us. And the appeal is the following. 
It's as if God is saying, we beg you on behalf of Christ, what Christ has done, be reconciled to God. That's the gospel message. In other words, trust in what Christ has provided on the cross that we may have a relationship that transforms us from being enemies, ungodly, sinners, helpless, to now we have a relationship with God. So the fourth aspect of reconciliation, we could call it a ministry of reconciliation, delivering the word of reconciliation, which is the gospel itself. So God has given us a calling. It's fact, in reality, we are a part of his administering of things on earth, and we stand before a lost world that are enemies to God, and we appeal on God's behalf that people be reconciled to God. So we have a ministry of reconciliation. A tremendous privilege, a high honor. It's a high honor to serve in the Trump administration or any administration. We have even a higher honor in that we represent God himself. We're his ambassadors. So we could define reconciliation rather simply. We... As enemies, in other words, past enemies, are brought into a relationship with a holy Lord. And to expand it a little, we could also add on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf to change us from enemies into a relationship that has been reconciled. So that's reconciliation, the fifth key idea that we find in the passage And I put all of these ideas on your outline sheet so that you have them handy there. And notice back in verse 10 of Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And notice the emphasis again, it's through the death of his son. That's parallel to what he said before, through his blood. So blood is a metaphor for death, through the death of his son. It's as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. And then notice it says, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, this much more reminds me of of an illustration that uh, kind of gives us a way of viewing what God has done. I used to have, uh, well, I guess they were still friends. I just haven't seen him in a long time. A friend that used to restore cars. So he would uh, find an old car that needed restoration. He would buy it at whatever the seller was interested in selling it. And at the time that I was talking, I remember he was working on a 1936 Ford that he bought for $500 in 1974. It didn't run, the motor didn't work, and it was just basically the the body. But he salvaged it, salvaged the body only, and he spent $9,000 and six months restoring it. He did this for a living, and sometimes people would bring old cars to them, and he would restore them for, for a price, or sometimes he would buy them, restore them, and then sell them. So he spent, like I said, $9,000, And after the restoration, now he has multiplied his investment at least tenfold and could sell it for probably over 90000 So 
the illustration here is if he's invested $9,000 and a lot of effort, six months of work, how much more is he now going to take care of it? Keep it polished. Keep the new engine running at top performance. Maintaining it until the day that he can sell it and make his profit. So he's going to be much more careful with this automobile now that he has spent and invested so much into it. Similarly, we could say that God has made an investment in us, costing him his only son, dying on the cross. So Paul in verse 10, much more now, after making such an investment, now that we are reconciled, now that we are restored, like that automobile that my friend John restored, We shall be saved by his life. So this is a great work that God has done. So how much more is he not only going to preserve it, but going to continue the process of restoration? And I think that's what's in view at the end of verse 10. So God's work, he took those of us that were helpless we could not change our lost condition. There was nothing that we could do to alter it. He died, and his death is the basis of our regeneration, the basis of our restoration. We were godly, and in that death, he forgave our sins, or he justified us, and he declared us righteous. Now we have a new standing. Once my friend John restored that car, he kept it in a garage, protected in a new standing. It has a new condition now. It is pristine. Similarly, we are, from God's perspective, pristine in terms of righteousness. We were in the past sinners through the death of Christ. Now we are saved. And in this little slide, I'm referring to the salvation once and for all, the forgiveness of sins at that moment. And in verse 10, we were enemies. And as enemies, now we are reconciled such that now we are friends with God. We have a relationship. There's a friendship there. So in verse 10, the last part of verse 10, looking at salvation again. So we have sozo again. And I think it's used in the same sense as we saw it in verse 9. We shall be saved by his life. Remember we talked about resurrection life in that other passage dealing with reconciliation. I think we have this same idea here. This is not saved from eternal damnation. It's not saved from hell. This is that ongoing aspect of salvation like we had in verse 9. So in verse 9, we have present salvation, and that's followed up in verse 10 with the same salvation. In verse 9, it's by his blood, which is his death, It's the basis for all aspects of salvation, the death of Christ. Everything follows from it. That death accomplishes that initial aspect of salvation where the penalty for for sin is paid in full. And there's no wrath. But it also has that ongoing sense as well. And it's reiterated here in verse 10. This present aspect of salvation now is by his life. And we could say that the Christian life is powered by resurrection life. And this is the theme that 
Paul is going to develop in chapter 6, 7, and 8, particularly chapter 8, where the key to the Christian walk, the key to this present tense sense of salvation is living in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of resurrected life. We're going to be introduced to that in chapter 6 and then fully developed in chapter 8. So we can rejoice no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. We can exult. And now he is going to continue transitioning. Now in verse 11, and not only this. So there's even more. So not only do we have in verse 9, much more than having now been justified. And then in the middle of verse 10, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now in verse 11, and not only this, not only everything that he said since verse 1, not only do we have peace, not only do we have an, an introduction to more grace, not only do we have a hope and an exultation in that future hope, not only can we rejoice and exult in tribulation, Not only can we exult in the love of God being poured out, and not only are we reconciled and friends with God, but now in verse 11, as he concludes this paragraph, and not only this, but we also exalt, and there's the word again, exalt in God, and always it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can have exuberant, rejoicing for his grace. So there's an abundance of what we have here. Now, we've run out of time, but if we had more time, we could talk about eternal security. But notice that if Paul, in his theology, thought that you could lose your salvation or that you were in danger of somehow losing the relationship with God, this would be the place to put it. Romans chapter 5. But verse 11 that concludes this paragraph It's nowhere to be found. Rather, we have this rejoicing as the concluding thought here. So we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a key idea, the last one here, number six, exaltation. It has that same idea that we've looked at before that we found in chapter four and at the beginning of chapter five. It's the word that is translated boasting in a good sense boasting in the things of God, and in some contexts like this one, more likely exuberant rejoicing for his grace or exulting in that grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And the verse concludes, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now we have the noun form again. So tying it all together, he started with reconciliation and now He concludes with the idea of reconciliation at the end of verse 11, having received that reconciliation. So just a concluding thought, we have resurrection power to live the Christian life that transitions us to the next subdivision of the book of Romans, Romans 6 through 8. And that resurrection power to live the Christian life Also, it gives us the ministry of reconciliation that we can bring others into the same reconciliation that we have received. Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Father, we have much to exalt in you concerning all that you have done. And as is emphasized in the passage, all that you have done in your son on the cross, we praise you and we exult in that. And we thank you for the abundance of grace that you have granted. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.